Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now the face of one of the great franchises in major league baseball and how about this adley rutschman will go from the right side just blasted 21 the switch hitter turns around and his first one goes remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks i'm one of your hosts james and adley rutschman bound from both sides in the derby makes my pants tight I mean, his pants are tight as well, so it's kind of like an osmosis thing. Diaz with you once again. And we're here with another famous switch hitter. That's right, folks. He can write legal opinions with either his left or right hand. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's not Jose Ramirez who deprived us of an Adley walk-off Grand Slam. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. No, the Orioles had the perfect all-star experience for me as a fan. The like out of nowhere reliever who like, I don't know if Yenye Cano is making another all-star game. He had a perfect appearance. Felix Bautista got the one bad performance that we knew was coming down the pipeline at some point out of the way in a game that didn't matter at all. And Adley Rutschman got to look like a fucking god in the first round of the home run derby and then lose so that he didn't have to tire himself any further. And we never see a gassed Adley Rutschman. A plus experience for the Orioles at the all-star break. No notes whatsoever. I mean, as a Phillies fan, I think we might have had a slightly better all-star game. Castellanos with the big knocks, Topper making all the right calls. Sure. And Kimbrell coming in to close it out. I mean, well, I feel like we need to go back and replay the World Series now on the basis of that. And, I mean, you had an even better all-star game, man, because you now have a family member with an all-star game MVP award. Elias Diaz, one of the i think i have five different diaz's in our dynasty baseball league do you this I, is my I, next question so you had collected elias diaz by this well elias if you remember was the one that fan refused to allow me to sign yes and I had, yes yes I had yes, to yes, ask yes. You to. i'm so happy to have helped make that happen well so it was elias i have edwin i have yandi i had a led but i had to get rid of him so shout out to all the Diaz's that populate my dynasty baseball team. Uh, who's making memories for me is a person that is very unfortunately making a sham of the heavyweight division. I need to talk about your boy, Xavier. I need to talk about Tyson Fury. I, I know what you're going to talk about. It's fun. Just let them, no, let them no, do no, this no, for no. the money. No, no. And first of all, I preface all of my comments with, I am thrilled for Francis Ngannou. He fucking stuck a middle finger right in Dana White's face. He said, fuck you. I'm going to go make the money that I deserve somewhere else. And he's going to make more for this pay-per-view against Tyson Fury than he would have made in his entire UFC career. So major props to uh, Nganu for pulling that off. Here's what I'll offer to the two of you if you want to settle this dispute on the sides of it. I present a perfect jury in that I have no opinion about this or information about it whatsoever. So make your case. Well, you know, as the prosecuting attorney here that is saying that Tyson Fury is a bitch, allow me to go first and then Xavier as the defense can retort. This is absolutely pathetic. 
This is one of the most pathetic things that has ever happened in the history of the heavyweight division. We have the lineal heavyweight champion. This is the man who very rightfully and legally defeated Vladimir Klitschko, who was the lineal champion. And an incredible story that Tyson Fury's had becoming morbidly obese, becoming addicted to drugs, and then becoming clean again to then reascend to the top of the heavyweight division. It's an incredible story, and I'm not going to take that away from him. What I am going to take away from him is any respect that I had, because coming off of this trilogy with Deontay Wilder, which was three of the best fights that we've seen in heavyweight boxing in a long time. It's the kind of thing that heavyweight boxing needed. He has two prime candidates in the heavyweight division that he can fight. If he wants to go for the money, he can fight Anthony Joshua. His stock is down a little bit recently, but he's still the other big British heavyweight there's a lot of money to be made there. There's a lot of storylines to be had there. Or he could fight the man who is the reason why Anthony Joshua's stock has fallen off, Alexander Ushik, who is not only coming back from the front lines in Ukraine, where he is fighting on behalf of his country, he's also the other person who has the claim to the heavyweight belts right now. It's the fight everybody wanted to make. Tyson Fury acted like complete cock during the entire negotiations with Ushik. He basically stuck a middle finger in his face and said, two to one ratio. I get the two, you get the one. And Ushik said, fine, let's make the fight. Fury backed away because he knows what would happen if that fight happens. So what does he do instead? He doesn't even fight anybody in the top 10 of the heavyweight division. He sets up this fucking sham of a fight against Francis Ngannou. And the casuals are going to love it. It's going to do so many buys and everybody's going to make so much money. And I'm so happy for Francis Ngannou but not Tyson Fury. It's a disgrace, an embarrassment to the sport. It's different than Floyd versus Connor because Floyd was at the tail end of his career. Tyson should be in his prime right now. Floyd had fought everybody there was to fight. Tyson has many actual legitimate fights out left to make. And if you're going to fight Francis Ngannou, just fucking fight Jake Paul next, dude. Like, what are we doing here? This is ridiculous. I'm running out of steam now. Xavier, your rebuttal. All right. So I'll say here that Tyson Fury has nothing left to prove in boxing. He knows it to the point where he retired. Well, well, Alexander Ushuk, Xavier, you need to address that point. He's, I'm just going to say that. Okay, you can't just say, like, if a boxer's around for 15 years and they've beaten everybody and it's like, oh, they have, he has to keep proving himself on the new hotness. No, he's already done this and beat someone who's already considered that multiple times. To the point where he retired last year and was like, I'm done. I don't need to fight. His wife was like, I don't want him to fight at all anymore. And then they're like, hey, we'll give you a ton of money if you come fight Derek Tesora again. And he's like, all right, I'll come out and do it. Kicks his ass. And then in the heat of the moment, he calls out Ushik. But I don't think he really wants to fight professionally much anymore at this point in his life. He's 34, but he's a hard 34. He's had all of the alcoholism problems and all of the personal issues. There's a reason why he retired when he had a clear head and tried to challenge Ushik in, like, the full adrenaline. I, I don't think he wants to do it anymore. And I think that's why he's like, all right, if I can get a nice payday with the exhibition fight, then I can really step back. Maybe in two years, they're like, all right, we really want to get that fight. And at that point, he'll be 36. Like, all right, I'll take the money and do it, and I'll probably lose. And I think that's where it's coming from. Almost an inverse of the original Triple G versus Canelo, where they were waiting until Triple G was too old. To the point where they're like, Canelo will probably beat him because they knew if he fought him earlier, Triple G would have kicked his ass. 
it's doing the inverse there, where it's like, he doesn't really want to do it. Eventually, he'll take the fight when he's older, so it doesn't look as bad when he loses, and he can just be like, hey, I only took the fight because of money. But I, I don't think he has that passion for boxing. Well, I, I agree. If he had it his way, 100%, I don't think he wants to fight anymore. I think deep down, that's probably true. Here's the problem. He's out here beating his chest and saying, I'm one of the all-time great heavyweights. You need to treat me like I'm one of the all-time great heavyweights. Okay. Lennox Lewis fought every single person that there ever was to fight. Muhammad Ali fought every single person that there ever was to fight. Joe Lewis fought every single person that there ever was to fight. And Tyson Fury still has two great opponents out there. His most impressive win is against like a 40-year-old Vladimir Klitschko. If he wants to be an all-time great... The Deontay Wilder win, I think, is more impressive. The reason I didn't rebut the Anthony Joshua thing is because beating him, I don't think, would mean anything. Because Anthony Joshua, at this point, is 3-3 and in his last six fights. He, no, he, his star his star is not there. There's way more to lose from fighting Anthony Joshua than there is from winning. And I just think that, like, if he was a couple years younger, I think he'd fight Ushik. I think it's just... Fair. I'm, James as our I've, I've heard both cases. No, I've heard both cases. I'm ready to make a ruling. I am sympathetic to both sides. I'm sympathetic to a wife wanting someone to stop. I am sympathetic to someone realizing that they made a mistake and trying to back out of a confrontation. In the end, I am going to have to rule that you did call the guy out and the choice wherein you are still engaging in a high profile fight, but not the one that you specifically called out. There were ways to come back from that call out, but I am going to say the course of action taken since that point, I rule on Diaz's favor. Fair enough. And, and just let us say again for the record, all the credit in the world to Francis Ngannou. This is yeah, no, him get the bag. Power move by him. And honestly, I hope he fucking lands one clean overhand right. I would love nothing more than for Tyson Fury to get folded. My worry but, is that he's like not going to show up in shape to that fight because he's not going to care. It's in it Saudi Arabia. He doesn't care. Like He could look very bad. Xavier, as a consolation to me not ruling in your favor, would you like to tell us what's making memories for you next? Uh, a couple of things. One... I'm really happy that Khalif White is back with Temple, uh, director of player development, I think is his role. Loved watching Khalif White play. I still remember going to, uh, I can't remember what building he was in, but Temple had a watch party for that tournament team and watched Khalif White against NC State and then against Indiana. It was so fun to watch him just old man basketball it up and put 30 points on the number one team in the country with zero help. I was going to say, because I didn't watch that game with you. I was watching that game with Femi and a couple of his friends. And that was where I learned of the term fuckboy. Because fuckboy describes Scooty Randall going 0 for 10, including 0 of 5 from 3 in that game and providing zero help. I was there quietly in the background. Oh, I yes, was in course. that room. <laughs> I was also in that room. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, hoping that Khalif has... A lot to teach the, these kids in this new era of Temple basketball. This is a big chance for Temple. You know, the big dogs have left the conference. New teams have come in. This is a chance where if they can take charge and do well for a couple of years, the wheels of realignment are always turning. It's not about being good. It's about being good at the right time. Temple happened to be good at the wrong time when nothing was moving, when they won you know, a football championship and a basketball championship. If they're good at the right time, Big 12 wants fucking everybody. So maybe we could get in the Big 12 so they could have an East Coast market and possible rival for UConn if they add them too. 
Excited to see what happens with Temple going forward. Also, really excited that Quinnen Williams got the bag. Love Quinnen Williams. Love that don't have to deal with a whole training camp of will he, won't he get this deal. Love that Nicole Lynn keeps negotiating massive bags for her clients. Easily becoming one of the most successful agents of modern time as the only black female agent, which is phenomenal. Congrats to Panama. You know, it sucks that the U.S. lost, but like a USC team losing doesn't really disappoint me, especially after, you know, we already saw the A team beat Mexico 3-0 in the Nations League semis and then beat Canada in the Nations League championship. So we got our win uh, this year. It's good to see possibly a, a new team winning since 2000, the Gold Cup, which is played every two years. It's only been the USA or Mexico who wins. So if Panama could beat Mexico in the final, something really great for that country. Adalberto Carasquilla, really good. He's probably going to go to Europe at some point. And the last thing, this is baseball purist, and I hate that I feel this way. The Yankees star patches, fucking horrible. I hate them more than anything else. Like, Yankees fans hated when the Nike swoosh started appearing in the pinstripes, but that was like a mandated change by MLB after they switched from Majestic to Nike in 2019. There's nothing you do about that. But like, Yankees already have more money than God. They don't need to take however ungodly amount of money it took to get a giant insurance patch on the arm. It, it looks terrible. It looks tacky. Baseball jerseys should not have sponsorships on them. It just looks weird. But especially the Yankees, if you don't need the money, it just it, it, it feels like a massive self-own there. I must confess, when I first saw it, I thought it was for Steven Star restaurants. <laughs> I used to work there, but it's not them. No, very sad what's happening there. And I also just want to say, also a big fan of Nicole Lynn. Got uh, got Jalen Hurts his bag. So I need to I need to find a Ravens player to connect her with. I'm not sure who doesn't have an agent. Well, I know one player that doesn't yeah, have an agent. There's one specific player who does not have an agent. <laughs> <laughs> that is the well-known thing about that player at this point. Oh, is that the well-known thing about that player? I think there's a couple other things. It is speaking of other things. Yes, I, I do have a couple other things. First off, hey, shout outs to Kiwi Fondue for indeed finishing a full 24 hours before any other entrant in World's Toughest Rose Great Pacific Challenge. Very happy for the four of them. But largely in international competitions that I talked about last week, I am unhappy for some folks in the Tour de France. I do want to talk about someone that has maybe made their last memories for all of us. Entering this, Mark Cavendish. He's a longtime British sprinter, one of the great sprinters all time in Tour de France history. Reminder that there are many jerseys you can win in the Tour. There is the yellow jersey for the winner. There's the white jersey for the young guy. There's the polka dot jersey for the king of mountains. And then there is the green jersey for the points leader. Uh, Cavendish is one of the, again, all-time great sprinters. And entering this year, he had 34 stage wins. That's something that sprinters have a lot. They rarely win the yellow jersey. He's never won the yellow jersey. He's won the green jersey twice because they win a lot of stages and they get points for the sprint in that. Uh, all of this to say he was tied with the like all-time great Eddie Merckx, the like Belgian super undisputed Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan of cycling. Mark Cavendish had said this was going to be his last season. He was retiring at the end of 23. This is kind of the last big event and just wanted one stage win. Just wanted to have that like all time win. And in the seventh stage, the guy who's wearing the green Jersey 
Jasper Philipson having an absolutely incredible tour. He's already won four stages. Last year was his first ever stage win. So like nothing against him, but in stage seven, Cavendish like had that one fucking dead to rights and come down the stretch. There was just an issue with his gear shifting, slowed him up for just enough time for Philipson to edge him out. Like if you go to the leaderboards, the time difference listed between them, because they don't do decimals. It just says zero, zero. Uh, and it says it for like several of the riders and it's just like it, it was tough like well cavendish will have other chances until the next day when cavendish was involved in a crash and broken collarbone solidarity he did go down and break his right collarbone not his left like me but it will lay him up for a few weeks out of racing meaning that he will not be able to compete in what was supposed to be his final tour de france and we've probably seen the last of mark cavendish as a professional racer i hope i'm wrong but uh, I think it's a, a good reflection on like how we do not necessarily get a chance sometimes to decide how we remember folks. Cause I mean, he's like, he's great. He is not any less great because this he's tied for the all time record with the guy who had what seemed like an unassailable record later on. That will be how he's remembered, but it's tough to see it end sometimes that way. So just something to meditate on as we think about guys this week. But as I understand it, team racing is something that might lead into what you have for us today? Sure. Well, especially with racing, right? There's the guy that wins and there's the team that helped him get there. It takes a team to win a championship. And everybody on that team contributes in their own way. And sometimes when you look at a team, you might say, oh, well, there's these superstars and then there's this other guy that was kind of just along for the ride. You might say like, oh, well, so-and-so got carried. And I think it's important to remember that these are all elite athletes. And if that guy that you thought got carried was replaced by another elite athlete that was only marginally worse, the team's probably not reaching that goal. So every contribution is important. And I want to honor those guys that got quote unquote carried today. So we're looking for guys that were part of a relay or part of a team where the initial reaction is, oh, wow, they almost messed it up for everybody. But when we dive deeper, there's a lot more to the story. And I want to talk about a race that we've talked about a lot on this podcast before. In 2008, Michael Phelps was aiming to make history by going eight for eight on gold medal events at Beijing. We all had no worries about the individual events, but it's those relays where it gets a little dicey. We'll dive in deeper on that infamous four by one freestyle relay that Jason Lezak ended up bringing back in the final leg. But I don't want to talk about the final leg. I'm going to talk about that third leg. Because if you remember, USA had a lead after two legs. And then in the third leg, that's where they fell behind. And I remember my reaction immediately after as a stupid 16 year old that didn't know shit about swimming. Wow, that guy in the third leg almost blew it for the whole team. But actually, that guy in the third leg has an incredible story of his own, and he is a massive reason why Michael Phelps was able to get that. Just the second African-American to ever win gold in a swimming event at the Olympics, and he is the first to hold a world record. Talking about Cullen Jones. Much like the 2012 Orioles, we are just slowly building out everyone that isn't Michael Phelps on the 2008 4x100 relay team. Everybody had a part. Everybody had a role. And really, as I, as I learned more about Cullen, an incredible story that Cullen has. First off, another record that Cullen has is the record for least birthdays celebrated by a gold medalist at the Olympics because oh, Cullen Jones, only- February 29th, 
He's a leap day, baby. He doesn't exist. Three quarters at a time, he doesn't exist because he was born on February 29th, 1984 in the Bronx. Shortly after birth, he moved to Irvington, New Jersey. It's a town close to Newark. He makes it on the Mount Rushmore for Irvington, but he's probably not the top dog because two other notable residents of Irvington, New Jersey, Jerry Lewis and Queen Latifah. Yeah, I know. He's not clearing either of them. It also No disrespect or anything. Oh, no, of course. But I mean, we're talking about Jerry Lewis and Queen Latifah. And with Queen Latifah, the ties went deep, actually. Her mom was a teacher at Irvington High School. But a lovely little town in New Jersey that he's from. And it's just a short drive from there to Dorney Park, Dorney Water Park. Many residents of the Philadelphia area will be familiar with it. They have slides, they have rides, they have pools. It's it's a great time, as long as you know how to swim. And when Colin Jones went there when he was five years old, he did not know how to swim. So he went down a slide on a tube. And his dad said, you got to hold on to this thing tight. And of course, Colin doesn't hold on to it tight. Uh, he falls into the water. It's not good for a little bit. Like his dad dives in to get him out. Um, they had to perform CPR, coughs up about a pint of water. And then by the time he's done coughing it up, he just asks his parents where the next ride was. So pure five-year-old brain doesn't realize that he almost just died, just wants to get back on the ride. His parents took him back out of Dorney Park at that point because they realized having a child that can't swim at a water park may not be the best thing. So they take him out of there and his dad signs him up for swim lessons. After a couple years of that, he would join his first swim team at the age of eight. He joined Metro Express, which was based out of West Orange, New Jersey, where they swam at the Jewish Community Center. So shout out, you know, letting them in, letting them swim. And at that community center, he said, I found the love at about eight years old. I went to my first swim meet. I looked at my mom and I said, this is what I want to do. From there, takes to it very quickly, very naturally. He would enroll at St. Benedict's Prep at Newark, New Jersey. So now hopping over to Catholicism. But the only thing that's important, he got baptized in that water and he is swimming like crazy. (laughs) How proud are you of yourself for that one? Honestly, I didn't even write it. It just came to me. So I'm really <laughs> proud of it. Um, but no, seriously, he's dominant. He's setting all kinds of county records, setting school records. He's attracting all kinds of attention. And he gets scholarship offers before he finally decides to attend NC State. At NC State, doesn't do anything his freshman year. I don't know if he was redshirting, blah, blah, blah. The next three years, though. He wins the ACC championship in the 50-meter freestyle, so 04, 05, 06. In 05 and 06, he's also going to be All-American in the 50 freestyle. And in 2006, he's going to claim the NCAA championship as a senior in that freestyle. Along the way, he's also a five-time ACC champion across various events. He was the ACC Swimmer of the Year for his senior year in 2006 uh, and was the meet MVP for the ACC meet in 2006. So coming off of this senior year, he has a lot of momentum built up and he immediately rolls right into his professional career. He's going to sign with Nike at his first professional event. It's the 2006 Pan Pacific Swimming Championship. He goes and sets the meet record immediately in the 50 meter uh, with the 21.84. He's also going to link up with a couple of buddies of his, uh, Jason Lezak and Michael Phelps. They're going to be three of the four legs of that four by one freestyle race. 
and they're going to set the world record at this meet. Their time is three minutes, 12 seconds and 46 milliseconds. And his split, pretty good. 47.96 on the 100 freestyle. The fourth uh, at this time is Neil Walker, not the baseball player. The same team comes back in 2007. They're going to claim gold again at the World Aquatic Championships. And this sets the stage for the Olympic qualifying. At qualifying, uh, he's not just worried about the 100 meter. He's, again, also a former NCAA champion in this 50 meter race. And in the semifinals of qualifying, he actually sets the American record in the 50 meter with the 21.59. This would last one day until the next day when the finals was raced and Garrett Weber Gale would break this with a 21.47. If Colin finished second, he still would have been okay. He did not, he finished third. So he doesn't qualify for the Olympics in his preferred event, his, the event that he specializes in. That is sad that we can't offer that to the third place champion. And I mean, I think they need to figure out how they're dividing these things up. Like America should get at least three. Uh, what's a, like a landlocked country? Like Ecuador, no, Equ- not Ecuador, uh, Bolivia. Does Bolivia need Famously two? landlocked Ecuador. No, Bolivia. Does Bolivia need to? I don't know. Anyway, the rules are rules. Colin was not able to compete. But he then, again, still was part of that four by one relay team. Uh, he heard this spot in qualifying at the U.S. Olympic trials. Lezak also obviously qualifies. Phelps also obviously qualifies. But Neil Walker gets kicked off this team because the same Garrett Weber Gale that broke Cullen Jones' one-day record in the 50-meter freestyle, he's going to earn that fourth spot in the 4 by one um, He's going to be the second leg of that race. This is the only race that Cullen is competing in at the Olympics. It's the only thing he has to focus on. Um, so that's all we're going to focus on right now. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. Going into this, Team USA, not the favorite. The French team is the favorite. They are led by the famously villainous Frenchman, Alain Bernard. Oh. Do, you want to, do you want to say the quote in, in, in that accent, James? No, I do not want to what do that. Okay, then I I'll say I just want to villainously twirl my mustache. If he had a mustache... That probably wouldn't You help, can't right? swim with a mustache. It's not Mark Spitz time I, anymore. Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say, there's only one Mark Spitz. But so he said, and now you can just imagine, you know, if he sounded like a vaguely Philadelphian guy, the Americans, we're going to smash them. That's what we came here for. Phelps had that first leg, gets the Americans comfortably into second because the world record for a first split of a four by one was set by Australia in that race. Uh, so Australia was actually in first after the first leg, but America's and in second. One important context that we've mentioned before, but I do want to put it out. Everyone's got the Speedo laser suits. Everyone's the fastest swimmer that they've ever been. All of the records get broken at this Olympics because everyone is in the suits that eventually get outlawed for being too fast. Yes. Very important context. So you know, after that first leg, they're up by 0.4. Garrett Weber Gale goes second. More or less holds it. He does expand it a little bit to 0.43. And then we get the Cullen Jones legs. Cullen Jones swims it in the 47.65, which is 0.31 faster than the split that he swam in that world record time that they established in 06. But it is 1.02 seconds slower than Frederick Bousquet, who swam that third leg for France. 
From there, we know the rest. Elaine Bernard tries to swim out the final leg against Jason Lezak until about 30 meters left. It really looks like Bernard's just going to get it. Lezak, I don't know if there was a current that he rode or something. He wins the race. The most incredible relay race in swimming history. Anybody that knows anything about swimming or history will tell you that. Incredible. And that time with the illegal swimsuits that James mentioned, not illegal at the time, now illegal. A three minute, eight second and 24 millisecond performance, uh, which was a full four seconds than the time that was set just two years earlier. So if you guys just hold on for one second. That's four seconds. That's how long that is. That doesn't sound like a lot, but imagine you're (laughs) racing a person and then you finish and then you turn around and you look back. If you have time to watch your opponent lose in a race, you had too much time. No, absolutely. But again, I wanted to emphasize that Colin Jones still swam the best split that he had ever swam. It was slower than his French counterpart. It was the slowest of the four that were on Team USA. But if he is just literally a tenth of a second slower, then Michael Phelps goes seven for eight. He doesn't put Lezak in position. And sometimes, you know, the setup guy might let a base runner or two on, but if he holds that lead and he gets it to the closer, he did his job. That was what Colin Jones' job was. Put Jason Lezak in a position to win this thing, and that's what he did. So an incredible split by him. And now as I look back in hindsight, and as I'm not a stupid 15-year-old that knows jack shit about swimming. (laughs) So in so doing, Colin Jones became the second African-American to ever win a gold medal in swimming. The first was Anthony Irvin. And I just want to riff about Anthony Irvin real quickly because he has his own kind of fun story. He swam in the 50 meter, the same as Colin, at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney to a dead tie in the final. So he and another American literally to a photo finish. They could not find a frame where one's finger was on the wall and the other's was not. So they split this gold medal. And afterwards, Jim Gray asked him, how did it feel to be the first African-American to win a gold medal? For important context here, Anthony Irvin is a quarter black. His dad has one black parent. Uh, His mom is 100% Jewish, and Anthony Irvin, if you were to see him, he is very white passing, and he fully identifies as Jewish. At the time when he's asked this question, he gives the generic stock answer like, oh, you know, it means a lot, blah, blah, blah. He was asked about it again in 2012, and this quote just tickled me. I didn't know a thing about what it was like to be part of the black experience, but now I do. It's like winning gold and having a bunch of old white people ask you what it's like to be black. That's my black experience. But yeah, so that was, I mean, that, that just tickled me. So it becomes the second African-American to win a gold medal swimming at the Olympics. Coming back in 2009, Cullen was very angry that he didn't qualify for that 50 meter. So he goes ahead and he reclaims the 50 meter American record with a 21-4-1. Jump forward to 2012. Uh, now we're back at the Olympic trials. Cullen's not going to let this shit pass this time. He's going to get a 21.59, which is enough to win the final heat for the 50 meter. He is just 0.01 seconds ahead of the second place finisher, Anthony Irvin, coming back to the Olympics 12 years later. Derek Torres shit. So now with these two competing in the 50 meter, Leah Neal 
would also join on the women's side to make them the first set of African-American teammates to represent U.S. swimming at the Olympics. Um, so it's the first time that we're, we're sending more than one, uh, which I think is good. And I think that's progress. And I think we need to do better still because we're going to get yeah. to another statistic later that is kind of fucking crazy. But in that 50 meter, Cullen is at this point known as the best of the world at this race. He's favored for gold through the, the qualifying heat and then the semifinal heat. All's going well. And when they get into the pool for the final race, he doesn't swim his best time ever, but he swims a time that should be good enough to win this race. He swims a 21.54. This was a full two-tenths of a second behind the man who did finish in first and who did claim the gold, Florent Manado of France, who was the second qualifier from France, only barely qualified of all the swimmers in the world. He was not one of the ones in the top 10 for time entering the Olympics. So completely off the radar. Admittedly, a measure of revenge for the French against Mr. Cullen Jones. Just a little bit. They do get the small measure. So Cullen has a subtle for the silver there. He did still compete in the 4x1 freestyle. This time they settle for silver. They do, again, fall victim to another measure of vengeance by the French. Although, one thing that's notable here that I don't know if we've touched on. Elaine Bernard was on the French swim team in 2012. He did compete in the semifinal heat. He was removed from the team for the final heat. So he did not actually swim in the final to win the gold medal. He still gets the gold medal for that team since he competed in qualifying things. But I think we all know, and I think he also knows deep down, that he didn't really win that gold medal. And I think I, that's satisfying. I do genuinely wonder how it feels, and I hope it eats away at him. Right. Like, it's it, on a technicality, you got your revenge. I, I hope he has some, like, Edgar Allan Poe relationship with the medal, and it just kind of, like, he can hear the sound of him not having earned it. <laughs> when he's away from the living room and just draws in there taunting him from the mantle. That's what I will choose to believe. No, I, I choose to believe that as well. But what's important here is Colin Jones gets these two silver medals, but he still had one more race. The four by one medley, he's going to compete the freestyle leg of that. And the four by one medley team would win gold. So Colin Jones claims a second gold medal became the first African-American to win two gold medals in swimming at the Olympics. And, you know, because the only thing that matters here, again, is the Olympics. We're going to jump forward to 2016. U.S. Olympic trials. Cullen Jones looking to get his revenge and get back into the 50 meters so that he can finally claim that gold. His 21.75 was enough for third place. Nathan Adrian would be the first qualifier from America. And Anthony Irvin, again, in 2016, is going to get that second qualifying spot. Irvin would go on to win two gold medals at the 2016 Olympics. He would win that 50 meter 16 years after he first won it. And he was also a member of the 4x1 freestyle team that year. I am glad that he genuinely had more shit to prove and wasn't kind of just like hanging around and taking up spots by other people on the qualifying teams. Well, it's, it's incredible because, I mean, a 16-year gap, like truly Theresian. Truly Theresian. For a sprint one in particular, I think, to be able to do 
a sprint that many years after what is presumably your physical peak when you're able to get it the first time. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, no, that's that's nuts. And I mean, we may have our own presentation on Anthony Irvin at some point. He's certainly a part of the guy universe to this point. One other thing about Irvin, became the oldest individual gold medalist in Olympic swimming history with that win, took it from Michael Phelps. But we want to focus on Colin again. So unfortunately, does not qualify for the Olympics in 2016. But coming back 2020, Colin's going to give it one last shot. He's going to try to qualify for the Olympics again. But when he fails to qualify, he takes this as a time to paint up his swimming suit of questionable legality and call it quits. 2020 is a good year to have some hindsight on all that. Except for technically it's 2021, if we're going to be real. <laughs> but uh, yes, he looked back and, uh, and with his hindsight, he did think that it was time to retire. Today, he is happily married. He's the father to a three-year-old boy. And he continues to do work that he began when he was 15, uh, which is teaching people how to swim. That crazy stat that I wanted to mention earlier, I'm going to mention it now. 64% of black children do not know how to swim. This is a blight on our country that we do not have programs set up across the nation to make sure that that number is like maybe 6.4, which still be a crazy high number. But 64 is fucking ridiculous. And Colin Jones agrees, which is why he's doing a lot of the work that he does. He started doing that work primarily through Make a Splash, which is USA Swimming's initiative to reach out into different communities and to teach swimming. One trip that he made was in 2010. If you may remember, there was horrible drowning that happened in Shreveport, Louisiana. He and his team went down there immediately afterwards. And he said it was definitely not only the hardest location that we've been to, but it was also what solidified why this was so important to me. Being able to be there and speak to the family members and to speak to the friends of some of these kids was impactful. That edges into your brain. Uh, it's why I'm still doing it 15 years later. Another group that he works with is the Black Leadership and Aquatics Coalition, which is an arm of uh, USA Swimming Foundation's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group that was launched in 2020. He was not a founding member, but he did join it because it doesn't matter if you're an Olympic athlete, you're still going to get racially profiled in this country. He once got profiled by a police officer while he was, quote, literally just walking my dog one evening in Charlotte. And he said, because he, this happened after his son was born, he not only was thinking of it as this happened to me, he was thinking of it as this is a world that my son is going to be growing up in and that I'm going to raise my son in. And I would like for it to be a better world for my son to grow up in. So he can say it better than I did. And I'll go out on this. Speaking about his participation in Team Black, Colin Jones said, I've had negative experiences with racism throughout my entire career. I know he will too if he decides to swim, but my goal is to make sure that he has a better time than I did. So if he has a child, he can do the same thing. All we can do is to try to make a better world for our children. That's all Colin Jones is trying to do now. And all he did in 2008 was swim exactly the leg that he had to do to bring home gold for the U.S., he did it again in 2012. He's an all-time great guy in the swimming community, and I dare say he belongs in our Hall of Guy, Colin Jones. That was very fun. I mean, even though we've talked about that relay team so much, 
Like it's, I still like I still like to do it too much. I, yeah, I still like hearing him. I still like hearing about it. And I like Colin Jones. What percentage of this podcast knows how to swim? Uh, based on your questioning there, I'm now thinking sixty six. Dia, can swim. you swim? I went swimming in the lake uh last week. Yeah, then it's sixty six percent of this podcast can swim. Well, we need to get those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. Well, I, I looked into it. I, I am one of 45% of Hispanics that can't swim. So, you know, I'm not an outlier here. I don't, I like kind of putting my feet in the water. That's about I, it. I get my, my question with those things, though, and I should have looked this up, but like, how do they define able to swim? Because, like, I'm not going to swim anywhere real fast, but I'm also not going to sink and I'm going to be able to get to where I want to go. I think that qualifies as swimming. I think the second part, the getting where you want to go. Like, if you can propel yourself through water, you're swimming. Yeah, it's, I think that it's that right. I'm sure. I believe that. Up. I believe that Xavier could keep himself from drowning until I come in to rescue you. <laughs> I mean, possibly. It depends on like what I'm in. Like, if I'm in a pool, then probably. It, like, if I'm in the ocean or a lake far enough out where I have to deal with waves, probably. Oh, not. I'm not ocean certified. I'm not allowed <laughs> to go in and try and save you there. Well, one thing we are allowed to do, James, is to get to our second presentation. And I'm sure Xavier has a great guy for us to talk about. We can toss Xavier into the metaphorical pool here and see if he sinks or swims storytelling wise. Well, you know, my story is going to start with a bit of a lesson. So who's excited to learn about biathlons? Hell yes. I almost also went with the biathlon, so I am excited to talk about shooting and skiing, baby. So for our listeners who maybe do not know about the biathlon, biathlon comes from old Scandinavian religious traditions where early Norse people worshipped the winter god Ullr, who skied around the world on a magic bone while wielding a bow and arrow and shooting shit. Because of that, Norwegians developed the ability to create their own skis to go around the snowy landscape while hunting for sustenance with bows, which is pretty badass. And they decided that they should use that as a way to train their military. I and like that you framed that as giving them the ability to do it. Like they would not be able to strap skis to their feet and shoot things without this mythological origin. Well, I mean, that's how like 90% of things happen. You just don't think about it unless there's a mythological origin. But, you know, this winter god with the magic bone and bow and arrow acted as inspiration. As early as the 18th century, they had organized this, like, regimental contests in, like, four separate activities. They were shooting at a mark while skiing at top speed, downhill racing among trees, downhill racing on big hills without falling, and long race on flat ground while carrying a rifle and military pack. The latter developed into what is now called biathlon, but was originally the Olympic sport of, quote, military patrol until a name change in 1948, which I hate because I wish there was still an Olympic gold medal in military patrol. We would have an Olympic gold medal both for military patrol and then in the Summer Olympics, military being trapped behind enemy lines and needing to escape with the pentathlon. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the pentathlon is it's meant to simulate the experience being trapped behind enemy lines and needing to escape that's why you're not allowed to I, know the horse ahead of time I, I love the origin of so many of these Olympic sports but as a basic concept modern biathlon competition consists of a race in which contestants ski through a cross country trail system and it's also divided into two or four shooting rounds 
half are in the prone position, half are standing. Depending on the shooting performance, extra distance or time is added to the contestant's total time, and shortest time wins. So for each shooting round, you have to hit five targets, or receive a penalty for each missed target. And you have five shots preloaded into your rifle. If you miss, there are three additional shots there, like at the station, that you have to load individually as essentially an extra time penalty. If after eight, you still haven't hit all five targets, you have to go ski off into a different little small area and do a penalty lap. The, the little showing. It, it's a shame spiral. It's a literal yeah. shame spiral, and it's the best thing about the sport. It's just a little, a little circle off to the side where you have to just go and ski around. Be like, you fucked up. You didn't hit all your targets. Go ski that little lap before you continue. Target shooting distance is usually 50 meters. These targets are pretty small. Like, when you're prone, less than two inches in diameter. When you're standing, less than five inches in diameter. They're actually, like, pretty um, high-tech with it now, where, like, instantly reads, so you can tell right away if you hit it. Because, you know, with a small rifle from 50 meters away, you might not be able to see initially if you hit it without that. There's multiple disciplines of biathlon. Standard individual race for men is 20 kilometers over five laps with four shooting segments, half prone, half standing. There's a shorter sprint race, 10 kilometers with two shooting segments. Pursuit, where they have a staggered start, and the start is based on previous times from things. Mass start, which is almost like a free-for-all, where up to 60 just go off at the same time. But the range is limited, and it's first come, first serve. So if you get to the range, but it's all packed up, you have to wait for someone else to finish. And then, lastly, they have relays. The relay teams consist of four biathletes, for men's relays, each ski seven and a half kilometers, six kilometers for the women. Usually ski three laps with two shooting rounds, one prone, one standing. There's also a mixed relay that's a little newer. That's two men and two women and kind of change up the length. Sometimes that'll be seven and a half. Sometimes that'll be six. But that's biathlon. The Norwegian Johannes Tingus Bo is one of the greatest biathletes of all time. He has 68 individual World Cup victories and 26 team victories at just the age of 30. But this isn't a story about him. It's a story about his older brother, Tarja. And Tarja is not as good as JT is, but he's really good at being good enough to be on relay teams. So Tarja was born on July 29, 1988 in Strind, Norway, a small town in the western part of the country. In a bit of an insult, Strin's small Wikipedia page notes JT as a famous person born there, but not Tarya, which kind of sucks. It's like, hey, you know, like, how much effort would it take to just add this professional athlete in there, too, if you already have his brother? But that's neither here nor there. One thing I do just want to mention, because I feel like we're shortchanging the audience if they don't know as we continue to talk about Tarya, that that is spelled... T-A-R-J-E-I. What yes. the fuck, Norway? And I, I, I'm using, like, the English, like, pronunciation. Like, I looked into it because I know that Norwegian pronunciations can be very difficult for English speakers. So it's not the true way that Tarje would pronounce his own name in Norwegian. But when doing an English interview, it's Tarje Bo. So I'll try to do my best with that. If anyone in Norway listens... I apologize that I am not a native Norwegian speaker, 
But Tarian started with biathlon at a young age. He spent a lot of time in Lillehammer, you know, growing up right around the time of the Lillehammer Olympics. He made his international debut at the Junior World Championships in 2006 in Preck Isle, Maine, a place that I have told James about randomly once before. I found very funny when I saw that. And at this, he won the 12.5 kilometer individual gold in his first ever competition. After a moderately successful youth career, he started competing in adult championships in 2009, finishing 61st in the individual in his first ever Biathlon World Cup match. Another thing to note is that the Biathlon World Cup is what they call their yearly season, and there's multiple different... Oh, like the NASCAR yes, one. Yes, So it's essentially, like, I think at this point they had 10 to 11 different events. So they had like an event in Sweden, Austria, Slovenia, Germany, the USA, Russia, Norway, stuff like that. But they'd have like a couple of different events in each one. And they'd have individuals for both men and women, and they'd have relays as well. A lot less relays. They'd usually have like one relay per event. And sometimes they wouldn't ha even have a relay at one specific place. So it's important to note there's a lot less relay events than there are individual events even when you count the fact that there'll be like three to four individual events to one relay at a normal competition itself. There are ones that just don't have a relay, so there's less chances to win relay medals. Despite his youth and you know his inauspicious debut on the World Cup circuit, Tarje is named part of the Norwegian relay team for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. He was a full 15 years younger than both the starter and the anchor on that team. And his inexperience showed where he had a relatively slow time of 20 minutes, 26 seconds, and 8 tenths of a second with misses on both his shooting segments. But it didn't matter because every other top team had at least one person really mess up that year. So Tarje and Norway win the gold medal by a full 36 seconds thanks to the fuck-ups by the other teams. Who's our Australian guy? Speed skater? Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury, yes. Total Bradbury. Love it. I, I can see it. it. It's when you have four people on a relay and they all have to do shooting, if one person fucks up and has to do James's uh, lap of shame, it can really hurt your chances of winning anything. It uh, is, to me, the best example of the roster construction of like, you just have to have no one that sucks on your team and you're probably yeah. in good shape. I think that's probably like one of the best ways to frame Tarje's entire career is that he was able to not suck and drag down everybody else. He's uh, the best fourth place person. Kind of. And, you know, like he does enter the individual event in the 2010 Olympics, finishes a distant 21st. Relay teammates Emil Hegel Svensson and Ole Einar Bjorn finished first and second. So, you know, he had the guys who were one and two on the individual event on his relay team. So that, that, that helps. He does have one phenomenal year. So later in 2010, so the, the Biathlon World Cup is late of one year into early of next year. So the 2010-2011 Biathlon season is like December to, to March. So he enters this Biathlon World Cup season, you know, fresh off of having won a gold at his first Olympics, despite being very young. And he has a ridiculous year. He wins five individual races and he wins three relays. This includes a world championship win in the 20-kilometer individual, world championship win in both the men's relay and the mixed relay. And for the first and only time, 
he won the overall points discipline by just five points over Svensson. So literally his first full World Cup season, he wins. Since then, he's never finished better than sixth in the individual standings. Five of his 12 ever individual wins in World Cup season happened in that season. He's had over 10 seasons since then, and again, only had seven more. This was like the the wildest thing. Like, everyone's like, oh my god, this guy is incredible. It's like, oh no, it just had one really good season, but the relay part wasn't a fluke. Even if he wasn't good enough to win things on his own, he's good enough to be part of a really good team. So, wins the gold relay at the 2012 World Championships. Again, in 2013, with both the men and mixed relays, he's never the fastest on the relay, but he's always good enough to be there. 2014 Olympics come around. Tari doesn't finish higher than 26th in any of the three individual events he enters, but he's on the relay team with sprint gold medalist Bjorn Dahlen, mass start gold medalist Svensson, and his now 20-year-old brother, JT, making his Olympic debut, and they're expected to medal. And Tarje puts up one of the best performances of his career. He has the fastest time of any athlete in the field and a flawless shooting performance. Like, he smokes everyone else. He's 10 seconds better than the next fastest athlete of any leg. But then, of course, Svensson turns into a shocker. Three minutes slower than Tarje with multiple misses, penalty laps, and Norway finishes fourth. So the one time in the Olympics that Tarje is better than everybody else they don't medal. I should say that technically, the gold medalists that year were the Russians, who the International Biathlon Union have said were doping and stripped it in their records. But the Olympics has not changed it in their records. So the Olympics still have Russians as the champions of 2014, even though the people in charge of biathlon said they were cheating. Well, now that would only bring Norway up to fourth out of curiosity. No, that would, would bring that them to third. That would bring, that bring them to third. Oh, oh yeah. they, if they're so they being denied do. a third place championship, then actually, yeah, bronze. fuck you, Russia. It would have been gold for Germany, more... silver for Austria, bronze for Norway. It is an even bigger sham than the 72 gold medal that Russia got in basketball. Soviet Union. Damn commies. See, and I, I was looking it up. I think it's because it takes so long for things to go through like CAS where they're like, we're going to like reallocate them. But as far as I can tell, even though they've stripped the gold medal from Russia, like the IOC still hasn't done it yet. So maybe one day they will. Maybe because it's biathlon, they just didn't announce it. But as far as I can tell, Russia still has that doping gold. It, it is what it is. Over the next three years, Tarje only win one relay championship gold on home soil in Oslo in 2016. That was sandwiched in between a bronze in 2015 and a really bad eighth place finish in 2017. But at this point, JT is destroying everybody, and that's going to help the Norwegian relay team going forward. So for the 2018 Olympics, they're back to being the medal favorites. JT wins the individual gold, has the fastest time in the field for his leg of the relay. Fortunately, Tarje finishes a full minute slower than his brother and has six misses. Emil also finishes even worse with a penalty lap. And so they finish second, a full minute behind the Swedes for a silver medal. Over the next three years, Tari is not doing much individual stuff. I mean, he's still competing, but he's not really getting close to winning anything. His brother's winning literally everything. 
but he continues to be part of the Norwegian relay team, even as you know some others age out and were replaced. 2019, they win the World Relay Championship once again. He's third on the team. 2020, silver in the men's relay, gold in the mixed relay. Second best time behind his brother in both of those. 2021, another men's relay gold. This time he's third behind his brother and a newcomer named Sterla Holm Ligrid. At this point, JT is going to be in every relay no matter what because he's the best. Sterla is coming on strong, and there's also a guy named Veltla Christensen who's also coming on. Who they're like, he's probably he's going to be our third. And Tarje is holding on to that fourth spot in the relay. It may be because of all the things he's done in the past. It may be because his brother is the best in the world, so maybe don't piss off his brother. But either way, still on these teams. Beijing last year, a full 12 years after his original Olympic debut, things feel like they're coming full circle. He's on a pre-race favorite team with a bunch of guys who were individually way better than he was. And then Sterla messes up the first leg so badly that he has to ski a penalty lap. He, he missed so, almost all of his shots. It was like he essentially got the yips for his like big debut in, in the Olympics. And Tarja, almost like trying to do too much to not fuck up, has like no big mistakes, but he's, he takes things so slow to make sure he doesn't have any mistakes that his time is even slower than Sterla's. But JT is third, and with them a minute and 40 seconds behind the Russians, JT makes up a minute and 15 seconds by himself. And then Veltla brings it home, making up the remaining 25 seconds, and they get a close win over both France and Russia and get the gold medal in the men's relay, despite Tarja and Sterla being pretty much terrible. Tarja does get a second gold, because for this year... He also gets to compete in the mixed relay because JT was the other guy on the team and wanted his brother with him. And JT I'm... does a full minute better than Tarya, and they win by 0.9 seconds. A lot of James Jones parallels here. Like, this is my favorite player, and I want him with me. He is also my brother. I, I'm going <laughs> to hang out with two ladies. Yeah, I'm going to hang out with two ladies. I want my older brother to be there as the four of us ski and shoot things. Wouldn't you want to have your brother with you while you go and ski and shoot things to bring honor to your country and gold medals? So at this point, we could still see more of Tarya, but it's looking more likely that we're probably coming up on, uh, on his time. At the 2023 World Championships, Sterla finished second to JT in almost every event and did compete with him in the mixed relay instead of Tarya. Tarja did still make it onto the men's relay team, but was the slowest leg and had to ski a penalty lap. So they ended up with the silver. It looks like it's going to be Johannes Sterla and Vetla and possibly someone else going forward. But, you know, regardless, Tarja, despite being overshadowed by better individuals, including his younger brother, for his whole career, has had an extremely successful relay career. Three Olympic golds, nine world championship golds, and, you know, just overall being just good enough to be on teams with other really, really talented individuals. And that's the value of learning how to ski and shoot things and also having really talented brothers. 
I, you took the words right out of my mouth on that second one. Like that, that is the secret. Just, you know, Wayne Gretzky's brother will always get to say that he and his brother have the most points of any sibling duo in the NHL. <laughs> it, it really is just crazy though, because that 2010, 2011 season where I was like, Oh my God, Tarje is like incredible. He win five races like and wins a gold in his first ever thing. And then it's like, Oh no, never mind. It turns out his brother is exactly what we thought he was going to be. Since JT started, he's won the overall title in the world's, in the World Cup three times, finished second two other times, finished third another uh, two times, and he's first this year. He he won more in two years than Tarja won in his whole career. But Tarja has more relay <laughs> wins than JT because he's been on more relay teams. You just got to know your role. Aim true. Take your time. Get there eventually. But just be reliable. That's what we love to say. But... Enough about being and shooting things and Norse gods. James, what do you have? Well, I appreciate the, the lead in Xavier. Yes. Cycling has been on my mind. Uh, and I just learned about a new kind of bike race recently. Have you guys ever heard of Madison cycling? I have not. Does it involve the state of Wisconsin? It does not involve the state of Wisconsin. It's actually named after the same thing that city is, which is President James Madison in a sort of roundabout way. So in 1839, there was this guy, uh, his name was William Corporal Thompson. He was not actually a corporal, that was just his nickname. And he was this dude who set up a roadhouse at what was the northernmost edge of New York City at the time. So like if you were coming into the city, first thing you saw, and if you were exiting the city, it was your last point to kind of check in. He called it Madison Cottage. President James Madison had just passed away. That was his way of honoring it. It was very popular. Then a couple decades later, it gets raised to build a park there. But because of the name of it, because of the like relevance of it, they do name the street there, Madison Avenue. And they end up naming that park after James Madison as well, Madison Square. Now you guys probably have some idea where I'm going with this because in 1879, the first Madison Square Garden is built on that site. Now, what does this have to do with bike racing? Well, today, Madison cycling events, it's expanded to pretty much any kind of two-person or sometimes three-person track relay event. They take place in the velodrome, which is like the indoor track cycling oval that has those raised and banked edges and up to like 50 kilometers. But the modern event, what it has become now, Madison Cycling, had a different ancestor because in the first two Madison Square Gardens located on Madison Avenue, there was a particular kind of race that people of the time liked. Uh, I will kind of hyperbolically refer to it as a death march. They at the time would call it pedestrianism. They would start these races and just have people walk until everyone passed out but one person, pretty much. That doesn't sound fun in any way or a race. That sounds like... That, that's like the worst version of put your hand on a car and last person yeah. to, to, to move gets it. Keep walking. You live. Congratulations. Everyone else is dead. Yeah, and it gets crowds. This is the best thing you have for entertainment around the late 1800s. And they do eventually get away from the, like, we're just going to let them die thing. They make it six-day races specifically. Six days because you can't race on Sunday. But they'll always start at Monday. And in 1875, P.T. Barnum is actually the guy that holds the first of these. And it's like the 24-hour Le Mans, basically. It is how many laps can you do in that time. And then around 1890, two things happen. One. 
bicycles are so popular that bike six-day races end up overtaking the walking ones. And two, this is when that second Madison Square Garden that I mentioned opens on Madison Avenue. Just a year before, in 1891, the first six-day bike race event is taking place. First ever six days of New York. For the first few years, just one person doing it. And like you could sleep, the better racers in particular would take some sleeping breaks because they know they can make up for it. But after a little bit, the psychos are just like, well, then I just won't stop. And sleeping kind of goes out the window for the most part. In 1898, the guy that wins sleeps like nine hours over the six days. This is the time when the fun police come by. And by the fun police, I mean the New York City Police Department. So they come and they say, you cannot have anyone racing for more than 12 hours a day. They have to race like six hours at a time. That's the most you can do. And the race promoters figure, okay, well, what if we just turn this into a pairs event so someone can always be biking? This new tag team starts to take place in 1899 now in the Madison Square Garden. The new tag team race now, the French are calling Course à l'Americaine. The Spanish and Italian are calling it La Americana. But in the official governing body, the name is Madison Cycling because of where it first took place. And some time passes. And in 1910, there's an Australian competitor, Alf Goulet. Not our main guy today, but an important guy. He had just become the national cycling champ the year before. And now he's in New York because it's the biking mecca at the time to make a name for himself. Uh, he's a big fish out of water. He shows up to New York in the winter in a sleeveless shirt and a straw hat. And he was also such a fish out of water that when he went to Salt Lake City, he declares that the women of Salt Lake are the most beautiful he's ever seen. Hey, man, the Mormons know how to party. No, they don't. Do they? <laughs> you know, if, if you ever go on TikTok, you'll see the way Mormons party. But I don't think it's appropriate to discuss on this family-friendly podcast. We shan't discuss that. We will discuss, though, a little bit more. Alfred Goulet, who... Comes in a shelter, but he learns more and more, and he learns about these six-day races taking place. And so he's like, yeah, I'll do that, but I can't do it alone. He has to work with a number of different races through the time, and there's one that I want to particularly zero in on. After this long preamble, I am ready to finally introduce my guy today, who goes by the name of Albert Grenda. I can honestly say I've never heard of him, but you didn't I expect us to hear of him, so it's fine. I mean, when it's a sport that we've never heard of at first... It's a pretty fair bet that we also haven't heard of the guy, but I'm excited to learn about the guy. No, I don't think you ever would have heard of him. And also, you might have heard of him as Alfred Grenda, because some places, like certain New York Times articles at the time, have it misprinted. But I have gotten as much confirmation as I possibly can that his name is indeed Albert Francis Grenda. Born September 15th, 1889. He is a countryman of Goulet. Uh, it is another Aussie in Albert Grenda today. Crocky! 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 We've given you too much power. Yeah, they've given me far too much power with that. He is born in the Cape Portland area of the island of Tasmania. Uh, his parents are German immigrants. Their names are Carl and Adeline. And he's one of eight kids. By the age of six, he is not in school anymore. He's just working the farm. And he and all of his brothers... They get into sports early on. It was four brothers. They're getting into the classic Australian sports at the time. Those were listed as football, rugby, cricket, and wood chopping. And at first I thought that was a joke, but then I looked it up and apparently wood chopping as a professional competitive sport did originate supposedly in Tasmania. And in fact, in 1891, they just had the first ever world wood chopping championship there. Basically, guys stand on logs and see who chops through it fastest. Where are the Lumberjack games? Are those in Canada? 
uh, primarily PNW. Yeah. I was getting, like this. This also sounds like it would do well in Wisconsin. It would probably do well in Wisconsin. Albert does not take to it. He's not a big fan. He wants to get into this new weird sport called cycling. By 1907, we have records of his first ever race. It's in local Scottsdale, still in Tasmania. And after he wins, supposedly, he immediately says that, huh, that was a lot easier than chopping wood. By 1909, it's right around when Goulet leaves Australia. And so, wide open for someone like Albert Grenda to come into Melbourne now and Sydney the next year. And in 1911, get all of these big wins that he's been building to. In that year, 1911, he gets the Australian One Mile Championship and the Sydney six-day race. He's introduced to his first six-day here, but kind of like a, a lower competition level here, much as it is in many other sports. The Australian League is not the highest one. So winning at this doesn't mean too much. And so he, much like Goulet, decides he needs to go to America and kind of ply his trade there. So after he gets the attention of some American promoters there, they want to see what he can do. They pay his way, and he shows up for the 1912 season. In his first season, during one of these like shorter track competitions at one of the velodromes, he scores a match race against this guy, Frank Kramer, American star. He's in the midst of a run of 16 consecutive national championships. Now, because he's in the mix of that, obviously he wins the championship that year over Grenda, but Grenda does get that one match race win in the heats early on one time. Later on in 1913, this is when he starts to get a little bit more success when he teams up with Yet another Australian slash Tasmanian, this one named Ernie Pye. Ernie Pye's been doing these six days for a while. And he sees Granda. This guy, seven years his junior, wants to kind of take him under his wing, show him the ropes of how to like really work this. Takes him in. They go to Canada. Again, this is a lower competition league, but it's higher than Australia. And they do take the Toronto six days as Granda backs up Pye, kind of growing his game. This win gets him enough cred to get the call from his fellow countryman, Goulet. Goulet, he has not been at the Toronto Six Days. He's been busy spending his year winning a bunch of stuff in Australia. And he's won a couple of New York Sixes up to this point. He worked with this guy, Joe Fogler from Brooklyn, who'd been doing it for a while. But Joe Fogler's done. He's too old. Ernie Pye is also done. He's too old. So Goulet calls up Grenda. He says, look, I need a partner. You don't have anyone guiding you right now. Come with me. Let's win a New York Six Day. These, again, like, I want to kind of put into terms exactly how grueling biking for even half of six days would be. This is Goulet, who is unquestionably one of the greatest competitors in that particular discipline of all time. His quote after his first six day, my knees were sore. I was suffering from stomach trouble. My hands were so numb I couldn't open them wide enough to button my collar for a month. And my eyes were so irritated I couldn't for a long time stand smoke in a room. So these, it feels these, like it's not worth it with that, that level of uh, inconvenience. Well, you say that, but this is, again, one of the major like entertainment industries that exists right now. These bike races. This is like one of the top build sports. We're talking We're about the gladiators people. of our day. <laughs> Absolutely. Even back in like 1898, when it was still just like the one guy running at a time, they'd get up to 150,000 people in Madison Square Garden. Not a safe amount at all. And for the record, that's what the New York Times reports. So, like, you can take that as far as you can take the New York Times word. More at other times than at current times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Fogler's done. Pie is done. And so Goulet and Grenda do team up for this next season. 
And in these races, I want to talk a little bit more about like the strategy. Like nowadays, you've typically got one team member going at all times on the inner track, and you can actually have your second person uh, kind of floating around the outside of the track. This is how they would enter back in the day, but now with them being shorter, someone just kind of always maintains that pace. They'll come in, and when it's a really good team, the bike switch would often have the biker that was about to exit take the arm of the other biker and slingshot them ahead to start them off with a boost at the beginning, which was something this Aussie pair was reportedly very good at doing. And then, you know, the other biker peels off to take their break for a while. Absolutely insane shit. That also sounds very dangerous. It is incredibly dangerous. There are a lot of injuries, but it is so popular that like a lot of celebrities will go to these matches and they'll foot the bill for the insurance and like medical bills of anyone that gets injured doing it because that's just how they want to Yeah, man. It it all solves itself. We will pay your medical bills. Die for me. Die for me. Like this isn't quite this time period, but supposedly Bing Crosby later on was notorious for like anyone that got injured at a race that he was watching. He'd foot that bill every time. Just die hard bike sadist. Going back for a second to 1898, just to like make sure we see what a difference it was changing this to a two-man game. The number one rider at that time was Charlie Miller. In 1898, he wins the very last one-man New York six day, sets the record at the time, 2,088 miles over six days. That's again when he only slept for about nine hours. By 1914, Goulet and Grenda together are so good. And it's mostly Goulet, but they are able to, in their time, Set what is still to this day the world record, 2,759 miles and one lap. That could get you probably from New York City to LA, right? Just about the distance of the country, yeah. Wow. And it's, I, I say that Goulet is the star. Grenda is good. But what Grenda is, this is how I wanted to kind of put it to you, Diaz. Goulet is in bead. And Grenda is the backup center you have always deeply desired who just keeps the team from bleeding points in the minutes when Embiid needs to sit. He is bicycle b-ball ball. Yeah, because like it's a team of two, not a team of four. You can't be outright bad on these teams. So it's difficult to find someone in that state. But like there is no question of who is the star here. Like Grenda's making respectable 100 200 maybe even 300 a day during some of these bigger competitions and and like that's enough for him in december of 1914 to settle down with his wife isabel crawford they get married in new jersey at her parents house for some reason so he's doing okay alf is making a thousand dollars a day and the article that i read that gave me these like salary figures The way that it contextualized it was that in the 1920s, an NFL team sold for about $100 when you got the licensing. And there were 11 teams in the league. So in one day, he could almost purchase the entire NFL in 1921. That is pretty bonkers. Like to even, because I mean, especially today, I figure each team would sell for like a billion, basically. At least, yeah. Four. What teams were in the NFL at that point? The Cardinals. Cardinals. The New York football giants. Probably the Bears by 1921. Bears, I would think. Detroit Lions, they've been around forever. Ooh, James, I might have to knock a point off. It wasn't the NFL until 1922. It was the APFA. 
Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I'll take that doc. The APFA. He could buy 10 of those 11 teams. Chicago Staley's, the Canton Bulldogs, the Akron Pros, the Columbus Panhandles, the Dayton Triangles. And they all belong to fucking Alf Goulet. Like, he's, he's such a star that literally firefighters need to blockade Madison Square Garden when they have any performance that he's in in order to keep the crowds from completely overwhelming them. And so Alf and the tall Tasmanian, as Grenda's now being called, he stood about six feet tall. They stay on the circuit. They win Boston together in 1916 after this. And they're also both kind of working with this third guy that teams up with them, Alfred Hill, who is an American, actually, a, a rare American needle in this haystack. And uh, at this time, Grenda has a bit of a dip. From 1916 to 1922, he falls off a little bit, doesn't have any major wins. He's living between Tasmania and New York with Isabel and the growing family. So like they'll do publicity tours in Australia. He races in a Sydney six day in 1920, but even now in Sydney, he's coming in third. So definitely kind of lost a step. In the meantime, Alf has actually become a full-on U.S. citizen. He just keeps riding. He's not with Granda right now since that magical run they had for a couple seasons. Each of them since that run had competed in a couple New York Sixes. As far as I could tell, they were never in the field against one another. Uh, but they are still competing, and Goulet has won. He's dragged a couple other people across the finish line. Jake Megan, Eddie Madden, Maurice Bracco, and my personal second favorite of his teammates, Gaetano Belloni from Italy. That, that guy's too Italian to exist. That's, that's not allowed. It is Belloni. Belloni. It is Belloni with an E. But yes, Gaetano Belloni was my second favorite of the teammates. My first, of course, being Grenda. We get to 1923. Goulet can tell he's getting towards the end of the line. And he decides there is one specific partner that he wants to carry across the finish line one last time. And so... Grenda gets the, the call or telegram. I do not know which was more likely at this point, but they want to get the band back together. Starter's pistol goes off immediately after midnight on Monday morning. This at this point is when they're so popular, they're doing actually two New York six days a year. This is the October edition. So it's Monday, October 1st, 1923. This is the first time I actually have info on a couple other teams. In third place, we had Dutchman Piet van Kempen with Oscar Egg from Switzerland. Second place is an American duo, Dave Lands and Sammy Gastman. And on Saturday, October 6th, in first place, Aussie, 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 Oi, 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 Goulet and Grenda are the champions of the first 1923 New York Six Day. This is the last ever Six Day win for the champion Goulet. Does have one last fourth place finish before he retires. Grenda. Actually, there's one last win in him. He goes with that same Swissman, Oscar Egg. They link up in Chicago. Again, one of the like kind of feeder ones towards New York and do win there. And then he plays out the string with a couple races in like Brussels and Belgium where it's just starting to catch on in Europe. But both Grenda and Goulet, their last like highest point is that New York Six together in 1923. The last evidence I have of any race for the tall Tasmanian was a Sydney homecoming in 1925 does draw a crowd of 55,000 to the Sydney Six Day. He does not finish in any of the places that they listed. So I'm going to guess at least fourth, if not worse. That's all she wrote. He retires in 1926 and ends up spending actually most of the rest of his life in California, where he buys an orange grove outside of Long Beach in 1930. 
He becomes a natural citizen like Alf. Once again, he's following behind Alf there, bringing up the rear. He lives with Isabel and their one son and their two daughters for the rest of his life as the Grenda legacy does continue. Got a nephew, Ron Grenda, who's another endurance cyclist. He wins some like local Tasmanian races, which Albert presumably gets to see. And then Ron's son, Michael Grenda, is an Olympic 1984 gold medalist for Australia in the 4,000 meter team pursuit. So another one of those relay ones carrying on the legacy of the family. Sadly, that is after our boy, the tall Tasmanian, does pass in May of 1977. I'm sure you're all nerds like me. And when you hear May of 1977, there's exactly one thing I needed to check. Don't worry. He was born on May 30th and he lived in Los Angeles. So I am choosing to believe that with the five days after it came on on May 25th, he did see Star Wars before he died. Is that not what everyone thinks of with May 1977? You don't immediately go Star Wars? I I think of the Sixers on their way to losing the finals to the Bill Walton pre-broken foot Blazers. I'm pretty sure that was the 77 finals. It definitely was. So yeah, they were probably beating the Celtics then. So that, if you said May 1977, that's not what I would think of, but it's the best that I can deduce. There we go. Uh, One other thing you might be able to deduce by the fact that you guys don't know about Madison cycling is that the sport itself does kind of start to fade around this time for a couple different factors. One is like World War II. Another one is the Great Depression. Another big one is just car culture, which kind of like chokes out the idea of bicycle races being exciting. And one other thing that is a little unfortunate to mention, but I feel like deserves some acknowledgement is that Part of the reason it shuts down is due to the success of guys like Goulet and Grenda, because Americans kind of get tired of seeing Americans lose so much once this becomes a more international sport. It has come back now. It is still competed in the Olympics today in a different format, but we do have Madison cycling back in the Olympics. And though he is no longer with us, we do have the story of the tall Tasmanian, Alf Goulet's number one second banana, one of the earliest titans of Madison Square Garden. And my guy today, Albert Grenda. No, fantastic presentation. What? I'm trying to think, like, there's literally nothing that compares to this in the modern day. So I did start looking up after you were introducing this sport. They do still kind of do this, but, like, yeah, not they really the at all. Yeah, six-day series. Right, which is now, the most recent iteration was abbreviated to a three-day series. And it's just competed from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah, it's, you know, the, okay, I guess illegally we have to let people be human version of it. There, There is a certain level of cavalierness about the value of human life that we had in the early 1900s that really allowed for some truly psychotic sports events that I don't think will ever occur again. And that's part of what I love so much about the Albert Grenda story and its link to the sixth day, just like, Unless we go to a truly apocalyptic scenario, we're never going to let people actively kill themselves that much in front of us ever again. Never say never. We have the NFL. You do the NFL once a week. They did this all but one day. Yeah, but there are so many sports where people actively kill themselves or make their lives shorter and worse for I our mean, entertainment. We- we opened this podcast talking about the sport where people punch each other in the head until one of them either falls out or we run out of time. Well, and speaking of that, I think it's time for us all to butt heads now because we got to duke this out until only one guy's left for induction. I don't know how we're feeling early on. This, this is uh, 
This was a, a difficult category, I will admit, to, to come prepared for. And I'm interested to see what you guys are thinking so far about who we have in front of us. So right now, I, I'm, I, I like the idea of Madison cycling, but I also really like the relay that involves cross-country skiing and then shooting a gun at things. That has a, a lap of shame if you suck at the shooting part of it. You know what? I'll tell you what's a real shame is that they took out the part where you had to shoot targets while still skiing. You know what? I'm sure that there are Norwegians who do that still. Might be a little too dangerous for spectators if they have you mobile while doing the shooting. But, I mean, it is still a the only sport that we know of where you have to go do stuff mobile while carrying a gun. I do like to think there's like some grumpy Norwegian guy, just like there's an American guy that's mad that you can't hit the quarterback in the head anymore. Like, you know, back in my day, we'd shoot while we were skiing. Except in a Nor Norwegian accent instead of a <laughs> vaguely middle-aged, red-faced American man accent. That guy like also vehemently hates the ghost runner rule in extra innings. Oh, he hates that. The, the pitch count he actually probably does like. I found that. I found boomers do like the pitch clock. Everybody likes the pitch clock. The pitch clock's great. It is the one universal truth. Um, also, because I know we were all dying to figure this out, Sixers were up 2-1 on the Blazers when Alfred Granada <laughs> passed away. So he went out thinking Game 3 was just a brief setback, and surely the Sixers weren't about to lose four NBA Finals games in a row. After he was he was nothing. in a world where like yo cinema is about to be opened up by Star Wars. The Sixers are a living dynasty that is just going to continue on. Like, oh, that we all could go out in such a beautiful fashion. That's I mean that's one of the that's certainly a pro in Alfred Granada's in his cap. A oh, feather in his cap. Not a pro is that not, is not knowing his name. It it is Grenda. Grenda, Granada, you know, I'm, I, we were talking CONCACAF earlier. It, it was in my head. No, Alfred Grenda. Also, the Sixers beat the Rockets in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's a bizarre thing to think. Um, All right, Diaz is now more interested in Sixers than in the actual cycling well, part. But listen, I mean, I, I mean, on the basis of this, I think I got to be an Alfred of it. <laughs> no, I do... The, the one thing that I would say if I was to I, I love Alfred Grenda if I was to make a knock against your presentation James it felt like a lot of it was focused on the sport which I do love and wish was competed ethically still if that was even possible I will go ahead and be honest there's not an immense amount of information about Albert Grenda out there in the world shouts by the way to Alexander Tepesnik who put together like one of the most integral encyclopedia entries for my creation of this presentation today. Can't find any information about Alexander Depesnik online, but he wrote one hell of an encyclopedia entry for our friend Albert Grenda. It's tough because I not so if we go back to Taria, Taria, right? Not Tarye. Yeah. It, it we're we're anglicizing his name no matter what. So like I definitely enjoy Taria. There's shades of... Uh, so one thing I also really quick want to make clear about this category is that Diaz initially presented it to the two of us as who is the George of a four-person group. And we, we toyed with this a little bit. But this is me mostly just wanting to get on record that Diaz is of the opinion that George is the least interesting of the four Beatles. So we know now that he thinks it's Lennon McCartney and then it's Ringo at three with a bullet, baby. Look, I saw Reno and his star band 
his all-star back. band and his all-star band excuse me i saw they reno and his all-star band so, look, potentially personal bias, potentially lack of knowledge about the Beatles. Who knows? But, yeah, my, my thing was the, the, the fourth member, basically, is what we were looking for. So if we do take this back to a literal definition, that would rule you out, James. And sure. kind of rules you out, Xavier, but not really. No, in, in both of his relays, he's primarily the fourth there. And, and we toyed with it a little bit. If that ends up being the deciding factor. I'll concede. I, I like the story of Tari a lot. I, I do, I think, of those two lean that way. Though, shout outs to Cullen Jones. One thing you didn't mention, Diaz. He is Cullen Andrew Jones. And I just love bringing up Andrew Jones, one of the biggest Hall of Fame admissions right now in baseball. Missed pandering uh, attempts. Does, <laughs> does he spell it the same way? Is no, he does not spell it with a U, unfortunately. I also don't but, think we're making enough of the fact that Cullen started swimming because he almost drowned sure like, sure there is some beautiful what's the word poeticism i think that's a word i think just poetry but it's not poetry it's like the study of poetry poeticism i'm, I'm we're, we're looking it up if, it's a word, if poeticism is Bumbo. a word study of poets. poeticism is a word that is a point in my favor i don't care <laughs> here's here's my detraction to cullen jones as good as his time was, don't get me wrong, it was good in that moment. We do have to consider it performance-enhancing swimsuits. PESs, what we've all, you know, constantly been concerned about in the swimming community. Well, were they still legal? No, they were fully allowed at the time. Everyone was wearing them. Well, no, no, no. It, for the 2012, were they still wearing those? I believe they'd done away with them by then. Well, there you go. He won a gold. He won a gold on, on the fair playing field. Although his shining moment occurs... With the illegal suit, I do yeah. concede that. I like I, Cullen a lot. I think I think just the problem for me and picking between all the other stories is that Brenda. That's something interesting I hadn't heard of, and I had a really good time learning about biathlon, which I had I had seen but never really gotten into. And it's like when you first said, you know, behind the scenes that you were going going swimming, he's going Cullen Jones. Like I I knew that's where you were going to go initially. Again, it's a story that I feel like I've, I've heard a lot, which isn't a knock to Cullen Jones. It's just, like, by far the most well-known of the three that we've brought up. And, I don't if, know, just when compared to two, like, that are very unknown, it, I, I'm, I'm just, my, my only be, personal thing is I'd like to go with the unknown. The new could story. be a knock against you and I, Xavier, because it is much easier to remember that guy with Cullen Jones. <laughs> true. I was, is exactly what I was going to If the knock against me is that my guy was too memorable... Then I guess that I don't deserve to win show that anymore. guy. Yeah. I mean, at this point, this show is half the time people that no one will know. Let's be real here. Sure, sure. I with Tarya Bo, he's great that he is a less famous family member. We love that. He's great that he has a hot rookie start and then flames out. We love that. And he is less successful on his own than either Diaz's guy or my guy, which is, I think, a point in his favor. He's the Igadala of the Warriors Core Four. Like he's a guy that maybe could have been like a solid solo contender, but accepted this fourth place spot and thrived in that. Sure. I'm leaning Grenda and I think I'm sticking with Grenda. And I think the reason that I feel as strong as about Grenda is guy recognized guy. Alf Goulet had his pick of partners. And when he was coming up on the last one where he knew he was really a contender before retiring, 
He knew it didn't matter who his partner was. He was going to put up as many miles as he needed to to win. And the partner could just be any old guy. And the second banana that he had already raced with that he chose to bring along with him across that finish line was Albert Grenda. That's what to me like signifies that of the guys that are the lesser parts of relay teams, he was recognized as the best lesser part of a relay team by a relay star. It's a hell of a pitch, but the internet still doesn't know for sure what that guy's first name is. Tepesnik told me it was Albert Francis Grenda, and based no, on just, the amount of information he had, I'm sticking with Tepesnik. I know, like, there are pictures of him that say Alfred Grenda also. It doesn't help that there's a possible Alfred and an Alf. Well, just the thing to me is, like, he made it all the way to when the Sixers had a 2-1 lead on the Blazers in the 77 finals. He's we like 89 to, when he dies. We should be able to confirm what a name is at this point. Like, the obituary at least should be final. Remember what you said to Craig Goldstein when he incorrectly identified the country of origin for Orlando Cabrera? That there is question over his name. Is that not even more discussion points for a guy? Makes him more amorphous. Like, let's pretend we exist in a world where you could bring Albert Grenda up at a bar. And so I'll be like, don't you mean Alfred Grenda? No, well, that's the thing. Albert or Alfred, <laughs> no one ever knows. This, of course, is in a crazy fantasy world. But hey, in that world. It's funny, when Diaz was first bringing up the age he died at, I was like, Wait, is he going to say that it's a knock that he didn't live like another week so the Sixers could win the championship? I mean, it's a lot of people are saying that was the news that took down the locker room, man. It wasn't that Bill Walton went God mode. It was that good old Al Burt slash Fred kicked the bucket. Al. <laughs> let's, let's just leave it at Al Grenda. Good old Al. Good old Al Grenda. Uh so it, it does seem like I'm going to have to be the deciding vote here. James, James has given their final pitch. Xavier, please give your final pitch. My final pitch is it's a guy in a four-person relay who was never the best at the relay except for the one time that everyone else sucked so they still lost. But every time he was either the third best or the worst on the relay behind a bunch of guys who were way better than him individually including his own younger brother who stole pretty much all like all of the hype that he originally had, they won. And so he was always just good enough to be on a relay team with a lot better people than he was and win some medals on a four-person team. It's a good pitch. And he shoots guns. That's a, that's a, that's a great final point. What, what does it say that when he had his best moment, when he rose to the occasion... It was cancer for the team. It, that's why he had to stick with being the third or fourth best to not overshadow any of the individuals with their big egos who needed to be number one. And he could always be in the background and just support them and be just good enough to make sure they're all like, yeah, we're the best and make sure they win. The one time okay. he stood up and was like, okay, I'm going to carry this team. Like, no, that's not your job. Don't carry this team. We don't like that. Okay. Okay. Another counterpoint, should he be penalized for at this point clearly just coasting off his brother wanting his vibes and bringing down the performance of the team? Like, I, I get that you're trying to keep the brother happy, but at this point, is he too bad to be the worst person on the relay team and he's just sticking around and bringing him down? See, if there was like a little more of a tail, I would say yes. But they did literally just win Olympic gold in both relays last year. 
he's got time to tail off. Yeah, so maybe in a couple of years he might be coasting too much, but right now I think he I think he's fine. You really don't want to allow this star of Madison Square Garden to shine, Xavier. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying Back that, when it was still in Madison Square. You know, I just I'm saying that I like my guy, I like your guy, and I like Diaz choosing whoever Diaz likes the best out of those two, and I'll be happy with either choice. It was your category, Diaz. This does feel appropriate. It's it's it's, it's a tough one. I think we had three great guys this week, but ultimately there can only be one. And we're going to go with a guy that knew his place, knew what he had to do, showed up, did his part, went home. Going to keep saying vague things that might apply to either one (laughs) until finally I do reveal that we are honored this week to induct into the Hall of God in season seven. <laughs> the edging. <laughs> Al Grendel, welcome to the Hall of God. Crocky, 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 We can't let James keep getting away with all these <laughs> awesome. away, Craig. That was incredible. Awesing. That was an incredible build up. Uh, I love that. And I love the decision. I'm so happy to be able to honor the good people of Australia with this ode to Al Grenda. Just Al. Let's leave it at that. We don't need to divide amongst the Freds and the Burts. Let us all be Al's. Let us all be Al's and let us all be pals. Pals, we appreciate you checking us out again this week. And we would love to give some thanks to producer Craig, to the whole team that actually just put out an update for producer Craig this week. That means nothing to any of you, but I just appreciate their hard work. Uh, Also, thank you to our musical director, Don Ham for our lovely theme music. Hey, guys, if you like what you heard, go ahead to our links, which you can find at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word and all lower case. If you go there, you can go ahead and rate, review, share the show and join the Discord. Talk to us about sports when we are not talking about sports to ourselves in Discord on a chat that gets recorded and put out into the world. You got our guys the day there. And also, speaking of biking. On Monday, 24, this is one week from the day you all are listening to this, there is an Orioles-Phillies game. And once again, I'm going to be a dumbass and try and bike to the Orioles game. This one is taking place in Philadelphia, approximately 110 miles from me. So much like last year, we're going to try and organize some donation to local abortion funds. We've already got Baltimore and Philly covered. We're going to get Delaware in this time. I want to show some love to the good people of Delaware who let me ride through their state for about 30 miles there. We'll have more information on that. And again, our Discord on Twitter, you can find all of that at that website. Guys, anything else from you on the way out? I'm going to take a biathlon and become a biathlete and learn how to shoot a rifle while skiing. Two things I literally cannot do right now. It's never too late to learn. It's never too late to get rid of Triple G, Greg Berhalter, and to appoint BJ Callahan as the rightful, non-interim, full-time head coach of U.S. men's national team. You know how I feel about Triple G, but BJ did lose. And, and it wasn't his fault. Uh, the Blues won their semifinal for the Mid-Atlantic Conference. They will have already played the championship Saturday against the and Alexandria won. Reds. And won. Uh, I'll go ahead and put my ass out there. Well, it'll be a great game because Alexandria is the only team to beat the Blues in the regular season. But it's a home match down in Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. If you're listening to this, I hope you were able to cross the time barrier 
and go back in time and witness that game because I'm sure it was great. But if the Blues did win, then they advance to the East Region semifinals. If they win both of those games, they win the East Championship, they advance to the Final Four. Hey, if you were in the Discord, you would have known about all of the game results before this came out. So go ahead and join that. But until we see you there, I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And when we promise you a good episode, we're just like NSYNC. It ain't no lie, baby. Guy, guy, guy. Are you Justin Timberlake? Although at that point, the Byzantines would not have like said in Turkey. They would just be like, we I know, are they're, they're, exactly. We are the Romans. But is there a good, I can't think of any college team that's the Romans. Is there one? We got Trojans, mm-hmm. we got Spartans, but I don't think we have Romans. Ooh, more or less. List of ethnic sport Trojans. team names. <laughs> this could get uh, bad. So this, this is the list of ethnic sport team and mascot names from Wikipedia. The first is Americans. So they got the Houston Texans, Allen Americans, uh, New York Yankees, Rochester Americans, Tri-City Americans, New York Knicks. Is, is Texas an ethnicity? Yeah. They, I mean, Apparently. they were an independent republic at one point. We got the Canucks, which is Canadians. Mm-hmm. We got the Canadians, which is also Canadians. <laughs> the Celtics. The Mumbai Indians. They should change their name to the Guardians also. They should become the Mumbai Guardians. <laughs> the Coachella Valley High School... What do you think the Coachella Valley High School hippies mascot is? Remember, it hippies. has to be in a, it's it's an ethnicity or hippies and ethnicity. It is the Arabs. That's bad. <laughs> they were the Arabs, and then changed it to the Mighty Arabs. Uh, <laughs> after... My, Mighty gives a connotation apparently, of respect. They a, apparently, they had a very cartoonish. Very offensive logo of an Arab person that after some backlash, they changed to the mighty Arab. I, okay. Diaz, you and I are going to try and see which one of us can get closer to the year that change was made. I'm going with 2017. I'm going to say 2020. Ooh, you're both a little, a little late on there. It was 2014. <laughs> Imagine being, I just like spirit day. Go Arab. Jesus. Uh, there is, in fact, one high school whose nickname is the Romans, and it's Los Angeles whoa. High School that George Takei went to. So George Takei is a Roman. No, it's Romulan. You're mispronouncing. It's Romulan. <laughs> god damn it! Oh my god, there's an entire separate list for list of sports team names and mascots derived from indigenous peoples. Uh, okay, and this is where we <laughs> own list. Adventure. <laughs>